0: The Irish Times Business Podcast in association with Irish Life. We're here to
1: support your company and your employees now and in the future. We know Irish life. We are Irish life. Hello and welcome to Inside
0: Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. In the second half of the show, we'll be considering the latest CSO data on new house building in Ireland. Have we turned a corner in the housing crisis? Owen Burke-Kennedy and Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times will join me for that slot. We'll also be looking at Greece's exit from its international bailout programme. It's out of the bailout, but is it out of the woods? You'll hear from Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times and Phyllis Papadavid of Overseas Development Institute who's on the ground in Greece. But before all of that, we'll have a roundabout some of the major stories of the week and I'm joined for the segment by Owen Burke-Kennedy of the Irish Times. Owen, you're very welcome to the show. Um, we're going to start with a couple of surveys that are related to the booze industry. One telling us that wine sales are rising and the other telling us that the number of pubs is in decline.
2: Yeah, interesting figures. Uh, first from the Irish Wine Association, uh, their latest report noted that um, while alcohol consumption in general falls, wine sales are up and the Irish population downed uh, a whopping 9.1 million cases of wine last year, which was a record Um And then a second survey on the number of pubs in the Republic, which shows uh, a decline of around 17% in the last 12 years. Now the decline is mainly in rural Ireland. just been a kind of mini revival of pubs in the city in Dublin.
0: In Dublin, yeah. Yeah. So uh, Dublin was declining until 2012, but now it's come up, I think. It's 30-odd new pubs have opened since 2012 in Dublin. you can kind of see that around and about, can't you? You can kind of feel that the pub industry in Dublin is really coming back. We know that Press of Paddy McKillen Jr.'s uh, company, they've been opening venues around the city.
2: And, and and you'd get the impression really that, you know, that's a product of the fact that the, the city's kind of driving again economically. There's a bigger population. So I don't think it changes the general trend, uh, which see, is seeing pubs around the country's close. But in the capital, uh, you know, there's just a, a greater population, a greater demand. And we've seen a, a kind of mini revival of pubs.
0: And on the wine front, I mean, wine sales have been going up now for a long number of years, haven't they? Yeah,
2: it? I mean... Uh, Irish people have been drinking more wine for three decades or more now. What's your
0: tipple now there? Are you a red man or a white man? <laughs>
2: My Chilean white seems to be the uh, the nation's tipple, according to this survey. But it's it's interesting because I think uh, both surveys, uh, you know, basically reinforce this structural change in drinking that's been going on over the last few decades. It's one that is uh, more and more people are drinking at home. That was reinforced by things like the recession um, and drink by driving. drink driving laws. And at the same time, uh, people are getting uh, into wine in in a much bigger way than they ever were before. And the pub really isn't a place where a lot of people drink wine. Uh, The selection is is small and the quality isn't as good. So uh, both those trends are kind of played out in both these reports.
0: Yeah, Okay. Now, the ESRI had an interesting report out this week on the gig economy. This is where people are kind of in temporary uh, employments or, you know, they may be involved in uh, operations like Deliveroo, etc. That's our perception of it, at least. And I suppose the perception that a lot of people would have had is that this side of the economy must be growing. But in fact, uh, there's little evidence to back that up.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of talk internationally just about how precarious and contingent employment is. For a lot of people, there's been talk in England a lot about zero-hours contracts and and how, you know, modern elements of the economy has uh, resulted in a lot of very precarious work in the service industry. But um, the main research uh, by uh, Seamus McGuinness in the RSI has found that actually the level of uh, temporary work or contingent employment, as he calls it, is actually back at pre-recessionary levels. Mm. So what he's found is that it the long-term trend has been at around 8% of total employment between 1998 and 2005, is, could be characterised as part-time employment. Now, this increased to about 10% during the recession. And a lot of people thought, well, that's the beginning of a trend. But in actual fact, since the economy started to recover in back. 2013, it's come back to its long-term trend. Now, some of that
0: know. might be down to the public sector because there, uh, there were cases in the public sector. I know some people myself who were employed, let's say, from March to November. Then they were let go for three or four months. They were employed for nine months per year because the government... Uh, the Whatever state agency was employing them didn't want to give them full-time rights, so it was letting them go and then rehiring them again as the season would uh, kick off. These people tended to be in the uh, tourist industry. So there was a bit of that going on in the public sector, but now things are are a bit better and the state agencies are recruiting again. They're probably recruiting full-time again, uh, etc. So that's probably one reason for it.
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's difficult to know uh, just because the economy and the employment is growing so strongly, mm. you know, are are we back to a long-term trend or is the, the current kind of bounce in employment kind of covering up kind of international trends?
0: And of course, we've had a gig economy for decades, haven't we? I mean, yeah. a freelance, in our own industry, freelance mm. journalists have been around for years and
2: years. Uh, and uh, McGuinness makes the point that, you know, temporary employment here is basically, is, is two types. It's basically short-term contracts or freelancing. And freelancing, has been growing, but it's still a very, very small proportion of of contingent employment.
0: Any numbers in there as to how we compare with the rest of the EU or Yeah, well,
2: uh, on average, um, we're we're still a good bit lower than the rest of the EU. Um, So we're about four percentage points lower on average than the EU. So really isn't the international trends aren't being borne out here just yet.
0: Just yet. All right. Now, the budget is hoving into view. It's in early October and the government obviously weighing up what it might do in terms of taxation measures and we've had some scenario planning by the revenue commissioners and in particular, they've looked at a a possible third higher rate of tax, of uh, income tax of 43% and they've, done, they've run the numbers, if you like, as to what that might mean if you tax people, let's say, earning 80 grand or more or 100 grand or more or 120 grand or more, etc. Talks through the figures.
2: Yeah, well, interestingly enough, what's happening like next January, around 120,000 uh, people will actually enter the top rate of tax for the first time. So we're going to have more pressure on the squeeze middle. So the government are obviously looking at ways in which to ease the burden or, or, or make it uh, m- uh, you know, more fairer in, in their eyes or in other people's eyes. But That's
0: presuming they don't do anything with the allowances and bans. Yeah, the, yeah.
2: Exactly. we were just talking about top rate. So, so one of the scenarios presented to the government by way of revenue is that they could raise $433 million if they introduced a new 43% top rate tax on income above 80000 Um So... Uh, that was one scenario. Uh, workers currently earning hundred thousand pay around thirty eight thousand in income tax, but a forty three percent rate on eighty thousand and over would cost them a further six hundred quid in tax.
0: Yeah, it's a lot. So, of, it, it's a lot of money, and it, it, obviously it wouldn't go down very well. But it would, it would also go down mean with when families
2: you, that are, are jointly earning, uh, you know, eighty thousand in tax. Yeah.
0: So that would mean when you add in PRSI and USC, own that would mean that the top rate would effectively be fifty five percent. The marginal top, which is pretty hefty.
2: Yeah, I mean, very hefty by international terms.
0: Yeah, no, the idea I'm sure won't be in favour of this multinationals. Won't be IBEC. Won't be. I'm certain of that. Although left wing groups might be. Uh, What are the chances of the government actually taking up this invitation, if you like, by the Revenue Commissioners? Yeah, well, that's crystal ball
2: gazing. I I don't know, but I mean, obviously, they're 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 endeavouring to look at various different scenarios in which they could ease the the burden on the on the so called squeeze middle, which is is perceived by a lot of people and a lot of industry groups as being very unfair here.
0: Yeah. OK. All right. We'll see how it plays out and that budget is on October 9th. All right. Umber Kennedy, thank you for joining uh, we're going to take a short break now. When we return, I'll be talking to Owen kennedy and Cliff Taylor about the latest data on house building in Ireland from the CSO. Back in a few moments. Only 29% of us know how much we need
1: to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to IrishLifeEmpower. or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life June 2015.
0: Welcome back to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. Just a reminder that you can subscribe to this podcast for free on iTunes and it's also available on our website irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. Now on Tuesday, there was some positive news on the level of new house building taking place in Ireland. According to figures from the CSO, more than 7,900 new homes were built in the first half of the year and that's a year-on-year increase of 30%. The increase was welcomed by Taoiseach Leo Varadkar, but does it signal that we've actually turned a corner in the housing crisis? Joining me in studio to ponder on this topic our Own Burke Kennedy and Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times. Owen, might just come to you first. Uh, walk us through those numbers. Yeah, well,
2: I mean, the answer to your initial question, just before I walk you through the numbers, is that we've certainly uh, turned a corner in terms of house building, but we may not have turned a corner in terms of the housing crisis. So the numbers, which are actually out on a quarterly basis, I just, for my report, added them up the two quarters to give us a half-year figure, but they show that there were 4,400 new dwellings uh, completed in the second quarter of this year, and that's a 34% increase on the same period last year. So a significant ramp up in building, and it, it suggests we're on course roughly to see around 8,000 new homes added uh, to the state's housing stock this year. Now the, sorry,
0: 8,000 for the first half of
2: the year? Sorry, 18,000 for, oh, 18, for, for, for the full year. full year. That's what the figures are pointing towards, yeah. So the kind of reality check now and all that is that's nowhere near the estimated level of demand, which is put even conservatively by some groups at thirty to 35,000.
0: Yeah, so, now I've seen it put at 25,000 by some groups as well. I've I mean, how do you know what demand at? is?
2: Well, it's yeah, it's, it's a difficult thing to uh, calculate and it's based on kind of, you know, household formations, uh, you know, divorce rates, loads of different things go into that. But it, it, I've seen it put at over 40,000 by some people. So, it's, it's so we're still uh, a
0: long way off meeting this uh, demand, meeting supply, yeah. uh, et cetera.
2: And those people who, uh, who aren't facilitating the housing market go on into the next year. So it's not something that ends at each year. So there's a kind of backlog that builds up.
0: Now, Owen, the Taoiseach, Leo welcome welcomed it, not surprisingly, I suppose, and he probably sees it as a signal that the various measures, policy measures that the government have put in place are beginning to work. But what's been the reaction from other quarters in the, you know, other commentators who are watching this very closely?
2: Yeah, well, I, I, I think... Um, You know, other groups have accepted the fact that building, uh, construction, uh, residential construction are rising. But Brokers Ireland, for example, said, you know, the 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 level of supply is still way below the level of demand, and therefore we're going to have continued price inflation. We're going to have continued people being pricing out of the market. So, you know, while the the dial is moving in the right direction, we're nowhere near
0: resolving the housing crisis. Yeah, Cliff Taylor, have we turned the corner?
1: Well, as Owen said, there's certainly an encouraging increase in housing supply, but we're still way short of on any kind of forecast of what we need. Uh, I mean, looking at the detail of the figures, one thing that is striking is, uh, in particular, the low level of apartment building, which is only running 3% ahead year on year. Uh, And part of the government's grand new strategy for the economy is more people living in city centres, living in denser developments, therefore living in apartments rather than houses.
0: I'm confused what our policy is on apartments because it seems to change so frequently. So it was, first of all, it was let's uh, build them bigger and better and have storage uh, space and so on. Then it was, we're going to reduce the size and then heights are going up, they're coming down, they're in certain locations. Now they can be in all locations potentially. I mean,
1: it's very hard to figure it out. And and I think uh, commentators are saying that this is one of the reasons why building is so low uh, of apartments and building of apartments is lagging. Uh, building of new houses because people are unsure, builders are unsure what the rules are. There's talk about easing the regulations a bit more, uh, but that isn't entirely clear. Um, builders say that there are uh, very significant barriers, for example, in regulations of what parking has to be provided uh, for new apartment developments. They're waiting to see if that's going to be uh, eased a bit. Obviously, the height of new developments has been a controversial area, uh, you know, for, for a few years now. But look, I mean, the government's strategy, the government says that its strategy is more city centre living, denser living. Uh, but yet, since that new policy was announced, there hasn't been much in the way of selling it. There hasn't been much in the way of clarifying what the regulations are going to be. And therefore, there hasn't been a lot of progress. So, you know, that is a particular area. I guess there are two, there are two problems in the housing market. One, mortgage buyers and one, renters. So the lack of apartment building is a real issue in terms of the rental market where we've seen increases are continuing to just storm ahead.
0: The other thing is, are we building the right types of houses? Because if you take um, Karen Homes, a listed uh, house builder, it had a scheme in Rathgar, a very high end scheme, Marianella. Mm. And the price, the average price of uh, apartments or homes there was very, very high. It was beyond the reach of first time buyers.
1: Yeah this is a question certainly there are there are some uh lower cost developments coming on stream as well a lot of them are still a long way out of the city center uh you know out in out in Mead, out in around the the periphery of dublin if you like still going to involve a lot of commuting for the people involved so yeah i think that there is an issue about the, the type of houses coming on stream the type of developments there does in fairness seem to be a big increase in new housing supply and particularly in new uh New housing developments, as opposed to one-off houses, the so of
0: so, one-off houses, yeah, I think, is down, isn't it? It is, yeah. And the proportion of, 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 of new
1: new, uh, new developments is is up, uh, up by fifty four percent. So that is, I guess, uh, yeah. the thing the government will cling on to, to 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 say, look, this is this is being addressed, but but a long way to go yet. Yeah, Owen, you talked to a lot of commentators about uh,
0: about the the housing issue. People who pay very close attention to it and have very strong opinions on it um are we you know are we building the right types of houses are we building them in in the right places are we building them in sufficient number
2: well i suppose when you ask that question it presupposes that we have control of this the government is entirely reliant on the private sector to build and the private sector um you know won't build unless inflation and prices are strong and that's borne out by the figures because you can see all the building is happening in the greater dublin area where the prices are big and a lot of developers will tell you it's not worth their while building in other areas where the prices yeah, are it's lower. It's an interesting
0: point, isn't it? Because yeah. developers can drip feed within certain constraints because obviously they have to repay the money they borrowed, presumably, to buy these uh, sites and so forth. Uh, but they can drip feed properties into the market as as they wish.
2: Yeah, exactly. So when, when we talk about are we building the right de- uh, areas or are we building the right uh, types of uh, of housing units, uh, you know, it's up to a private developer to make those decisions. Um and the catch twenty two is, if we want uh, building rates to rise, we're going to have to suck up a lot more inflation, and that comes with an affordability issues for young and middle income families and people. And it, it's it's you know it's a real bind that we're in, and that's because we're completely beholden to the private sector to build. The government has kind of largely, most Western governments have largely given up the idea of going on massive social hou- housing bills. Uh, instead, they're kind of basically you know supporting rents. Oh, uh, in the kind of classic paradigm shift from benefits or from bricks to benefits is what they call
0: it. Yeah.
1: Cliff, we built a lot of houses, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. The government built a lot of houses for people. Why don't we do it now? I think that that's where the debate's going to go. I think, you know, Owen's put his finger on it. Uh, at the moment, the government is reliant on the private sector. Uh, and it it looks like that's only going to get us so, so far. Uh, I think one of the issues for debate now over the next few months is going to be the vacant site levy, which is due to increase to 9% from next January. Uh, Mick Wallace has... Uh, this is
0: to try and force or incentivise whatever absolutely. way you want to look at it. Builders to move on land, not yeah, just, yeah. just to simply sit in it to wait absolutely. for prices and to
1: rise. You know, to end the practice as you were talking about there of drip feeding stuff onto the market to say, look, this stuff has to, mm. th- 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 has to be built. Mick Wallace has said, has uh, published a bill saying the rate should go up to 25%. Uh, so there's uncertainty about what exactly is going to happen. But have you re- any idea what Mick Wallace was
0: saying about a vacant site
1: register when he was actually building homes himself? <laughs> no, oh no, indeed. Uh, but this is an issue now, I suppose. And uh, you know, politicians always want to try and grab the issue of the day. You might say. Yeah. And, and but I think the other thing that's going to that you already see surfacing in debate is can the pub, can the private sector be. Entirely relied on to do this is more government intervention needed. Uh, are there models that could see cooperation between the private sector and public sector to bring new PPP, schemes that failed before? It did. It did indeed. Yeah. Uh, in, in which you know rents are underwritten or whatever. Uh, the greens what are the, call- the greens are calling for a couple of sites to be developed. Uh, as kind of uh, flagships, if you like, for trying out new models. Uh, what about the central bank's role in
0: this clip? Because they put in place some very tight mortgage rules, which yeah. you know really constrain first-time buyers in terms of what they can afford. Sure. Is that the they correct do. policy measure?
1: I think it is, uh, because otherwise you're going to have people um, getting back into the situation we saw before the bust, when people were getting 100% mortgages and were getting mortgages of five, six times their, their income. And then as soon as incomes fell or house prices fell, they ended up in negative equity or struggling to repay their mortgages or both. Uh, So I think we can't get, you know, we can't pretend that abandoning these rules is going to, Okay, maybe it allows a few people to get back on the ladder. Uh, But it's definitely storing up problems for the future as we we saw. Uh, And I don't think we're going to go back down that road again.
0: Oh, and there seems to be a presumption that when we get supply and demand into Kilter, that uh, house prices will go down or ease off and um, that they'll find a natural level. But is there any evidence to support that? Because before the boom, we were building up to 90,000 units a year and house prices were running ahead. They were at record levels. Yeah, I can kind of safely say there is literally
2: no evidence that confirms that fact. I mean, show me a housing market anywhere in the world that's growing at 2%, which is the kind of, you know, ordinance for stability. It seems that even if we do tame the level of inflation, we're going to be doing nothing to address uh, uh, the affordability problems for for many people. So, it, it's it's a pretty bleak outlook at the moment.
0: Yeah, Cliff, how long before we get the market into Kilder? <laughs> oh gosh, I don't know. Before uh, well, supply meets demand.
1: Well, I mean, on current trends, it's another couple of years, isn't it? Uh, at best, uh, it, a lot of it depends on how the economy goes. Of course, uh, if the economy hits a bit of turbulence from Are you Brexit or, or, or whatever, positive or negative on the economy, given world events. It's hard to know. I mean, what can you say? The economy's going well at the moment. Uh, growth is very strong. The jobs market is extraordinarily strong at the moment. So, you know, we're going at a good pace, but there are huge uncertainties next year. You know, you tell me how Brexit is going to work out and I'll tell you you know what the economy might be like next year. We ha- we have this huge risk in March next year, which may or may not come to pass. Uh, if we escape that bullet, then the outlook for next year is, is you know, is, is probably OK, uh, assuming that Mr. Trump doesn't start a you know, total trade war with Europe.
0: Okay, well, we'll see how that plays out. Now, Ombar Kennedy is going to leave us as we move towards our next segment, which is about Greece's exit from its EU IMF financial assistance programme after eight years. It's out of the bailout, but is it out of the woods? Uh, Staying with me in studio is Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times. And I'm also joined by phone from Athens by Phyllis Papadavid of the Overseas Development Institute. Uh, Phyllis Papadavid, uh, thank you for joining us from Athens. Um, so Greece has come out of its bailout uh, this week. Pierre Moscovici, the EU Commissioner for Economic Affairs, said it was a return to normality for the country after uh, some very difficult years. Uh, does, uh, how are the Greek people feeling about it? Or does it feel like the end of a, a crisis? Are they positive? Are they negative?
3: It doesn't particularly feel like uh, a change uh, for the the general population here, I think Greece uh, has suffered quite a bit in terms of their economy. And most Greeks, most analysts, in fact, here are treating the exit from the third bailout package as a moment of reflection rather than a moment for celebration. So it's a hopeful but tough road ahead.
0: And how's the economy performing there? Because we hear that there are signs that the uh, the economy is coming to life again. We know, of course, that in Ireland, we exit our bailout at the end of 2013 and the economy really took off. So what are the early signs, if you like, in Greece?
3: So the economy is growing at around 1% year on year, which isn't uh, any great shakes. It's certainly an improvement from the 25% contraction in the economy that we saw. Uh, but it's no great shakes uh, in terms of real rates of, of GDP growth, the big game changer for Greece will be whether or not they increase investment spending, private investment spending. And the tax burden is particularly important here. And that's actually the distinguishing feature if you compare it to, say, Ireland, which had very favorable tax rates for, for businesses, for small businesses, medium-sized businesses. Uh, Greece does not have a similar tax picture. Uh, it's continued to be pointed to as a burden, an obstacle for, uh, for
0: growth. Cliff Taylor, Greece is still going to be heavily indebted. They got 289 billion euros worth of loans.
1: Yeah, and uh, the debt to GDP ratio is still very close to 180%, which is, you know, well into danger territory. And they're not back in the markets yet? No, uh, no, they're not. And, uh, you know, they do have uh, favourable loan packages from the EU or at least, uh, you know, low interest rate loans with with long maturities. Uh, That's the plus side. Uh, The negative side is that uh, the conditions for that are pretty tough. Uh, that they've agreed, Greece has agreed to maintain what's called a primary budget surplus, which is a budget surplus before national debt repayments of 3.5% per annum for the next few years. And, and I so, think it's
0: two, 2.0% out to 2060, yeah, which yeah, just seems barking mad. I mean, how, how can anybody know what the economy or what the world is going to look like yeah, in 2060?
1: Ab- absolutely, uh, ab- absolutely right. Um, but I think the problem is, that, and as Phyllis said, there, there are issues with taxes and, and public spending. In Greece, But the worry is that with those kind of financial targets to be met, that the government is going to have very little leeway in, in, in terms of its budget sums. Uh, what the IMF uh, and the EU are pushing it to do is to cut pensions again to create some leeway in the budget for next year. Obviously, that's politically very difficult. Uh, and I'm sure Phyllis could give us a bit of colour on that. Uh, but Ireland was... In hindsight, Ireland was lucky in terms of our timing when we when we exited the bailout. We exited at the end of 2030. I think if you remember back then, the mood here was still pretty low at that stage. We didn't see much hope of growth over the next few years. We were glad to be out of the bailout, glad to wave the Troika goodbye at Dublin Airport. But th- there wasn't any mood of optimism. And we were lucky to hitch a ride on a really strong global economy for the next few years. And uh, The hope would be that Greeks might be able to do the same, but it has this that burden these constraints and also some more uncertainties and, and a global cycle, which is a lot more advanced than it was when we came out of our bailout.
0: Yeah, but Cliff, I think what we didn't realise at the time, but what, what was actually happening was that there was massive sentiment towards Ireland internationally, yeah. both the foreign uh, multinationals who have boots on the ground here, yeah. but also private equity and so forth. They looked at Ireland and said, right, they're out of their debt uh, bailout programme now. Now's the time to get into Ireland when prices are really low, particularly in property, we can sure. invest and we can make a lot of money here.
1: Sure, and you know we were lucky... From that point of view, that money coming in, it was encouraged by the rock-bottom interest rates, particularly in the United States, which pushed a lot of these investors to look around the world and say, where can we make a bit of money over the next few years? Of course, there's controversy now about how much money they've made in Ireland uh, and whether you know the conditions were, were, were too favourable for them. But the reality, too, is that it's helped the economy here to grow very strongly. I think Greece, Greece faces a tougher job uh, in terms of attracting investment. It doesn't have the same history in terms of FDI. And uh, private investors took a very significant haircut uh, during the crisis in Greece and are going to have to be uh, inveigled back in very carefully. At the moment, the vast bulk of Greece's debt is from uh, from public bodies, the EU and the IMF, uh, the EU principally.
0: Phyllis, let's talk about the next budget because even though Greece is out of the bailout, there's still going to be very close surveillance by the European Union and the IMF um, because they still have a lot of skin in the game, obviously. And there's a budget uh, for 2019 that has to be framed. So what are the main arguments uh, in Greece at the minute around that budget?
3: So the, the, the key arguments around the budget are, as was mentioned by Cliff, uh, the changes to um, the, pe- the pension system and also tweaking taxes uh, even more. And that's really been the problem with the whole fiscal policy. They, they are constrained. There is a fiscal straitjacket. They do have to meet their targets. They do have to raise taxes. Um, but... They have not uh, succeeded with their easy wins. There are easy wins for Greece, such as scaling back uh, bureaucracy, uh, making it easier for foreign investors to boost up the FDI into Greece. They haven't done that. They haven't scaled back uh, the ease with which people can invest in the country. There have been small steps, but there hasn't been game-changing moves uh, making it easier for for people to invest in the country and also you know privatization is an ongoing discussion here in greece and it's i think going to feature in the upcoming budget discussions as well that's been very slow moving they continue to miss their targets in terms of privatization targets and that is an easy win as well because that could give the government a bit more leeway in terms of its revenues
0: Phyllis, how bad is youth unemployment in Greece? I mean, we heard a lot about that over the last uh, few years.
3: It's one of the worst in Europe. So there's been some improvement, uh, but it's it's I think at par, say for example with uh, with Spain, which has seen an improvement. But it's it's at one point it was sixty percent of the of the sixty percent unemployment for for youth unemployment. Now I don't want to sound too negative. There has been Uh, um, an improvement in the sense that there is a startup culture uh, increasing in Greece. There are a number of startups. There's a dynamism uh, that has been, I guess, widely reported in in the press. But in terms of structural unemployment, job generation, job availability in small and medium-sized enterprises, in corporates, it's been lagging. Um, The improvement that we've been seeing is, you know, in in tech startups and things like this, which is very different than moving the sort of structural rate of unemployment.
0: And Phyllis, we heard a lot about the size and uh, scale of the black market in Greece again uh, over the last uh, number of years. Has the government done anything to tackle that?
3: They have moved in the direction of, for example, Um, making things a bit more electronic so electronic receipts for example and things like this Uh, but again it hasn't been anything game-changing there is still i think according to the oecd a big share of the economy that is as you said black market
0: cliff would greece have been better by leaving the euro
1: big question uh I don't think so. Uh, I think it, the chaos that would have ensued would have been would have been enormous. And um, by the time that question was asked in uh, in 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 twenty fifteen, and those extraordinarily uh, the, the, the extraordinary events that followed the uh, the January election that year, the negotiations with Europe, uh, the brinkmanship uh, by the Cyprus government, Yanis Varoufakis, we know the story now it came very close it appeared uh, and it even appeared there was support uh, from germany for example certainly from some quarters in germany for greece leaving the euro and relations were very bad, and, and and it was avoided. But I think by that stage, Greece had taken and Greece had taken a lot of the pain. I think the chaos of, of leading leaving the euro would have set the country back by you know by, by years, would have deterred foreign investment from coming in for, for, for many years. And um, that said, there you know there are clearly lessons uh, from Greece in the way that Europe handled the crisis, uh, and uh, you know many mistakes that were made. Uh, the speed with which austerity was introduced at the start the, and the delay in writing off debt uh, just didn't appear to give Greece a chance uh, and, and appeared to be designed from the outset at least to, to try and protect the banks that had lent money to Greece in the same way as the banks who had lent money to the Irish banking system were protected. Uh, so, you know, while ostensibly Greece was offered solidarity by its European partners in some way, they were, you know, they were protecting their own banks as well. Uh so, you know, mistakes made during the crisis, but I, I don't think they would have been better served by leaving the euro. Uh, Phyllis, uh, next year, I think there's a general election. Just wondering if there's going to be a political
0: dividend for Alexis Tsipras in guiding Greece uh, out of its bailout program and through the worst of austerity.
3: There is somewhat of a political dividend, um, but I think the proof is in the pudding, as they say. We will have to see growth continue to accelerate, and not only the overall growth numbers, but the composition of growth, drivers of growth will have to be convincing, I think, for there to be a significant uh, political uh, dividend for him, um, because po- po- politically he may be benefiting in some to some degree, but the feeling on the ground is that not much has changed. Um, general sentiment among
0: the population it's pretty negative okay Cliff finally any lessons for Greece to learn from Ireland's exit from its bailout and its successful re-entry to the markets
1: I suppose that if you can manage to get get the momentum moving in your direction um, it it, it can do a lot Uh, that was what Ireland managed to do Um, you could argue how much was uh, how much was sticking with the programme and how much was luck and it was probably a bit of both uh, but certainly I think the lesson from Ireland is that if you can get the momentum behind you in terms of growth and job creation, tax revenues uh, and, and things moving in the right direction, uh, then then that quickly improves the debt numbers, quickly improves your financial position and gives the government some, some political mm-hmm. leeway to do things in the budget. I guess the problem for Greece is they're starting off from a much more difficult position, number one. Uh, than Ireland did, uh, even though the budget has, you know, the budgetary situation has improved very significantly. And number two, the outlook for the world economy. We didn't know in 2013 how good it was going to be for a few years, but we really had a great few years. And and I guess the question now for Greece is whether the next few years are going to be as good. And Mm. I guess there's more uncertainties where later in the cycle, we have Brexit, we have Trump. A yeah. lot of question marks.
0: Yeah, mind you, um, we're still running uh, a budget deficit, and we there, are. There, there wasn't a political dividend for Enda Kenny or the Labour Party uh, no, in Ireland. No, there at was, the last general election, was when they got hammered
1: at the polls. Labour, in particular, got hammered. Labour, in particular, got, got, yeah. got hammered. You're right, uh, and I guess the uh, the dividend to t- to the extent that it has accrued to anybody will will perhaps accrue to this to this government, but uh, we have to see about that first of all. Uh, as Phyllis said, the proof of the pudding is at, is, is at the polls. And uh, certainly Labour, uh, the Labour Party in particular, uh, and you know, Fina fall to an extent as well, but the mm. Labour Party feel very sore about having taken what they felt was the right decisions, the hard decisions and getting absolutely um, hammered nice. for doing it. That's politics, I'm afraid.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and we'll see how it plays (laughs) out in
1: Greece over the next uh, year or so. That's
0: it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to my guests, Omburg Kennedy, Cliff Taylor, and Phyllis Papadavid. Declan Conlon produced the show with JJ Vernon, as sound engineer. Don't forget, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our business today, email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.